Hello and welcome to the Emotion of Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition and this is episode 55 and for today's episode we are doing something a little bit different. It's a first for the Emotion at Work podcast actually and um, we're starting to look into some of the behavioural analysis parts of the work that we do within Emotion at Work. And in particular, we're looking at pragmatics today. So we're looking at meaning in context and and how people negotiate meaning in context. And the way that we're doing that is analysing a piece of data. So we're analysing a real life interaction uh, that happened and we're then looking to unpick that to say, okay, what happens then? How do people negotiate meaning in context? And this is supported by a piece of analysis that's been completed by myself and Ashley Hilton. Um, We've done the analysis together of a a TV interview where Susanna Reid and Ben Shepherd from Good Morning Britain are interviewing the then Secretary of State for Health, um, Matt Hancock, on the anniversary of the first lockdown um, as part of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the report that we put together... It, it sits alongside this podcast as a as an asset, as a resource um, for those that are interested in how we as humans negotiate meaning in context. Now, why are we talking about behavior analysis then? Well, it's a big, big part of what we do. And what I mean by that is analyzing behavior, analyzing emotions, working out what people may be thinking or what people may be feeling is a key, key part of what we do. Now, that could be when working with teams. So when we're working with with teams or groups of people that need to kind of come together or align together, then reading the room and, and analyzing the behavior and working out what's going on. When I say reading the room, that's the physical room and the virtual room to analyse their behaviour, to try and work out where people may be, what their stance on something is or what their stance on something may be, is important. Also, when we get involved in investigative work, then again, analysing the behaviour of those individuals that we might be talking to or interviewing is really important. And then, when I'm carrying out consulting work, so the interactions that I have with senior leaders, teams within organisations where we're trying to establish what's really happening and what's really going on. The ability to analyse behaviour is such a helpful thing to do because it helps get an idea of what really matters to people. What might they be thinking and what might they be feeling and how do those thoughts and feelings change over time? So if we're talking about one particular topic and then we move on to a different one and the behavior changes when we move topic and then if we, so we're talking about topic A and the behavior is is happening in one particular way. We then move on to topic B and the behavior changes. We move on to topic C and it goes back to similar behavior as it was for topic A. So I might then bring the conversation back to topic B to say, well, does that behavior change again? And if that behavior does change, what might that mean? and come up with different hypotheses as to how that could be happening and what could be going on for that individual that's causing these changes in behaviour. Because what we think and how we feel show up in the way that we behave. And a previous guest on this podcast, Dawn Archer, she talks about this idea of giving a message. So we're trying when we're trying to give a message in particular, but then we also may be giving off another message. 
And it's those aspects around analyzing behavior that I think is quite unique to what we do uh, um, in terms of the skill sets that both we have and also what we bring to the work that we do. So if analyzing behavior is something that is going to add some value for us, then it does for our clients as well. And that's why we want to start to showcase more of the analysis work that we're doing. So this is the first of a number of pieces of analysis with a different focus every time. And today's one is on meaning in context. So as you know with me, uh, there's always a uh, an evidence base that sits behind the work that we do. And so the, the underlying principle that we're going to look at for this piece of analysis is something called the cooperative principle. Now, the cooperative principle was, was first put forward by Grice in 1979 as a theory to explain, or not to explain, maybe to support the understanding of how conversation works. And that what we mean... What we say, sorry, isn't necessarily always what we mean. So the underlying, I guess, part of the cooperative principle is that in the main, in interaction, when people are talking with each other, they want to cooperate. So this cooperative principle comes with that kind of base assumption that people want to cooperate with each other when they're interacting. And what Grice suggested then is that there are four, what he called maxims, so four sort of spectrums of the way that we communicate that then uh, underpin this uh, cooperative principle. And those are quality, quantity, relevance, and manner. So quality being that you tell the truth. And you don't say what you believe to be false. So one of the things that has to underpin this cooperative principle, that some may call it a truth bias, um, is we, we, have, we work on this, this underlying principle that we will tell the truth and not say what we believe to be false. Now the second one then is quantity. So quantity is about saying enough and not too much. So we're giving enough information so that the other person that we're interacting with can understand what we mean, but we're not giving too much information. Third one then is about relevance, which is staying on topic. So whereas quality is about giving enough information, but not too much, relevance is about staying on topic. It's staying in staying on the topic or topics that the conversation is on and not going off on tangents or introducing new uh, new information or new new topics new ideas it's about staying on the staying on topic staying on the point and then manner which is uh, it's the you'd think it's to do with the like uh, the manner in which you have the conversation but it is and it isn't really so it's a bit of a confusing title um but it's about avoiding ambiguity and being clear. It's about avoiding ambiguity and being clear. And then what can happen in interaction is people can bend, break, or adhere to these maxims. So I can adhere to them in terms of I can tell the truth and um, say things that I believe to be true. I can give you enough information and not too much. 
for quantity, I can stay on topic for relevance, and I can be clear and avoid ambiguity for manner. But I can also bend some of those maxims. Um, and what then starts to happen is we get into the realms of what's called implicature, which is where we, by bending some of these maxims, we start to imply things rather than say them um, clearly or overtly. So what would a good example be? If I think back to my days of working in teams and, and, and working with other people, somebody comes up to me and says, Phil, Phil, can you give me a hand with this? And I say, not right now, because I'm just drowning at the moment. So the opening utterance is, Phil, Phil, can you give me a hand with this? My reply is, not right now, I'm just drowning at the moment. Now that implies that I am in a body of water, submerged and unable to breathe. Now, whether we're talking over a video camera, if it's in a virtual world, or whether we're in a physical space together, the other person that I'm with will be able to see that I'm not in a body of water and I'm not submerged. So what they are likely to take from a meaning perspective is that I have a high workload at the moment. There's a high volume of work on my plate and I don't have enough time to fill in, to, to, to help them and support them right now. So when we talk about meaning in context then, if you were to look at that utterance out of context, you might think, oh, Phil's in a body of water draining. Um, but what Phil actually means in context is there's too much work on or he feels there's too much work on and he doesn't have time to help the individual that's asking for the help in the first place. And so in that example, you could argue, well, is Phil bending or breaking those maxims? Is he telling the truth? Through metaphor, yes. Is he giving enough information and not too much? Probably not. So he, by saying not right now, I'm drowning at the moment, he's giving enough information, a small amount of information that, that gives meaning, but is he giving enough information to, to answer the other person's question? I would say no. Is it relevant? Yes. Um, is, am I avoiding ambiguity and being clear? Probably not. Because I'm not saying, instead of saying no, my workload is so vast, I can't help you at the moment, I can help you on Wednesday next week. I'm saying not right now, because I'm drowning at the moment. So I'm not giving a clear um, indication or idea of when I can help, um, or what the volume of my work is. Um, so I'm, I'm bending two of the maxims there. And you can both you can be bending or breaking one or more at a time, depending on uh, on what it is that's happening. So if these maxims can then be adhered to, they can be bent and they can be broken. As an analyst, I am really interested in when people I'm interacting with are doing those things. When are they bending? When are they breaking? And when are they adhering to the maxims? Because when, when individuals do bend or break the maxims, I'm interested. 
in particular if that's out of pattern. So if there's been a pattern of adhering to the maxings, for example, and then the individual starts to bend or break them by either being vague and ambiguous, not giving me enough information, um, not saying what they believe to be true, going off topic, some of those things, that's interesting for me because it gives me an indication of, of something more going on. Because if somebody's going to go to the effort of bending or breaking those maxims, it's because there's something more going on for them. And as an analyst, I'm interested in that then because I want to understand if I can understand what that is, I can better understand the individual. So whilst the cooperative principle is about meaning, and it's about the meaning that we take from something, because there can be a, a, a first like a, a, a first meaning and then an additional meaning. So if you think about my example, the semantic meaning would be I'm in a body of water draining. What I actually mean is I've got a high workload and I haven't got time to help out the individual in question. So as well as linking to implicature then, it can also link to deception. Because when we think about that first maxim of telling the truth or not saying what we believe to be false, then that again is an interesting part of what I'm looking in what I'm looking at from a behavior perspective because people lie all the time and why they lie well that's a whole other kettle of fish and what they lie about that's something else entirely please notice that I'm you break bending maxims within my response within my utterances of that's a whole different kettle of fish so what I mean by that is um there's some there's some aspects of what we do when we're involved in an investigation where there may be um, deliberate deception in terms of trying to mislead the interview or trying to mislead an investigation. Other times, though, there is deception happening because people are embarrassed or deception is happening because people aren't sure or they're not sure what the right thing is to do. So one of my favorite questions that I like to ask when I'm consulting is what verifiable evidence do you have that X is the problem? Because often when I'm consulting, uh, I'm, I'm going with one person's view of the world. So somebody's coming to me and saying, oh, Phil, Phil, we've got this difficulty or we've got this problem or we've got this challenge. Can you come and help us? And I'm like, yeah, of course. What verifiable evidence do you have that this is the situation? And when the answer is, I don't know, that's helpful for me because then I can say, well, let's see if we can verify that then. Or other times what I'll get is a is an answer that is vague, ambiguous and unclear, lacking in detail, lacking in information to allow me to get meaning. And why might that person be uh, vague, ambiguous or lacking in detail? Well, it could be because they're embarrassed because they're thinking, oh, my goodness, this person just asked me a question. This consultant's just asked me a question that I don't know the answer to, and I don't want to say I don't know because I might look bad. So instead, I'll try and make something up. So I'm interested in that then as an analyst because then that tells me that there's additional work to be done and there's additional thoughts and feelings that are at play that I might not be aware of. So, so far, I've given you a fictional example of I'm draining at the moment. Um, I've given you an example of some of the things I do in the work that I do. So let's have a look at the actual data set we're going to use for the piece of analysis uh, today then. So this is an openly available TV news interview and a link to the YouTube video will be uh, in the show notes. Um, 
And what's in, what's happening here then is we've got the then Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, Matt Hancock, is being interviewed by Ben Shepherd and Susanna Reid on Good Morning Britain. Now, TV and TV interviews with politicians in particular, and you may argue on Good Morning Britain in especially, are known to be confrontational. Um, and so there are other aspects that are at play at this inter- in this interview or in this data set. The confrontation is there. Uh, there's, there's, there's a phenomenon called impoliteness, which, which is at play. And if you're interested in impoliteness, then I would encourage you to go back to a previous episode of this podcast with Derek, um, Dr. Derek Bicefield, um, where we talk about impoliteness and banter in particular. And one of the things to remember about um, TV stuff or TV interviews in particular is we're getting we are being positioned a particular perspective so there's a finite amount of time the interviewers will have an agenda so the interviewers will have an agenda that they're trying to push they'll have a line of questioning that they want to explore that will have either just been designed by them or the producers or the directors of the of the tv show similarly the politician in this case matt hancock will also is likely to also have an agenda to push so he will have a particular line that he wants to take that could be decided by him or so by somebody within his political party um and so what we may have is uh and these things could align or they could misalign so they could be aligned in terms of um the areas they want to explore or the lines they want to take or there could be misalignment um and so that can make analysing TV interviews sometimes tricky because of the activity type um, that they have. And what we also need to remember is that part of what a TV interview is trying to do is to entertain or inf- and or inform the viewer. So there's more at play here than just the what would call in, in linguistics you'd call them interlocutors so the people that are involved in the conversation so here you've got ben shepherd Susanna reed and matt hancock but they're not just talking to each other like you might have in a day-to-day conversation in the workplace because they're also talking to the broader audience because they know that this is being broadcast out to the public as well and whenever we're thinking about analysis it's important that we put the data set in context because when we're the title of this podcast is about negotiating meaning in context and so when we're thinking about what we're going to look at what we're going to you what you're going to hear actually um we have to put it in context so the first aspect we want to think about then is when we think about the meaning in context and how um, Matt Hancock in particular uses the cooperative principle maxim. So how he uses quality, tell the truth and don't see anything you believe to be false. Quantity, say enough but not too much. Relevance, stay on topic. Manner, be clear and avoid ambiguity. Um, the first aspect we're going to look at is framing and how Matt Hancock uses those maxims to reframe what's happening within this interaction so framing then is a way that we position a topic or an issue or an utterance and in day-to-day life we frame things all of the time 
So you have some classic examples of come to me with problem. Come to me. With, I nearly got the wrong way around. Then uh, come to me with solutions, not problems. Um, or if you might be framing features versus benefits. So if you ever worked in sales, that, then the the mantra would be frame them as benefits, not as features. So you think about your feature and then reframe it into a benefit. Or do you are you making somebody wait, or are you building anticipation? So the way, so the framing happens all of the time, and what I'm interested in is how Matt Hancock uses the maxims to reframe what happens um, in this first part of the interview. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to leave a small gap. You're going to hear the audio of the interview, then there'll be a small gap, then you'll hear the audio again, so you'll get to hear it twice for this excerpt, this this part of the audio. And then we'll come back and we'll start to unpick what Matt Hancock does. So if you want to, grab a grab a pen, grab a piece of paper, think about those four maxims, and then as you listen to the this excerpt and you listen to it twice, note down where you think Matt Hancock may be bending or breaking some of those maxims. Okay? Ready? Here we go. Matt Hancock, what are your regrets over the past year? What do you reflect on that you could have done differently? Well, I regret, I regret all of the deaths. Um, I, I remember the very first one. And I remember feeling uh, a deep sense of loss. And I, actually, I found out about it when I was here at home and sitting down and it, it, that that really hit me um i remember at, at the start we thought that you couldn't pass this disease on unless you had symptoms and that's what uh you know that that was the that was the assumption and that underpinned some of the early policies um and we've learned a lot we've learned a lot as a society and you know thankfully now we can see a route out of this uh, but it's it's probably been the hardest year this country's had for for a generation and I wonder and, and if one of your everybody's been touched yes and and that is absolutely true just wonder if one of your biggest regrets okay so that was your first listen and here it comes again Matt Hancock what are your regrets over the past year what do you reflect on that you could have done differently Well, I regret, I regret all of the deaths. Um, I, I remember the very first one. And I remember feeling uh, a deep sense of loss. And I, actually, I found out about it when I was here at home and sitting down and it, it, that, that really hit me. Um, I remember at, at the start, we thought that you couldn't pass this disease on unless you had symptoms. That's what uh, you know. That that was the that was the assumption, and that underpinned some of the early policies. Um, and we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot as a society, and you know, thankfully now we can see a route out of this. Uh, but it's it's probably been the hardest year this country's had for for a generation. And I wonder and, and if one of your everybody's been touched. Yes, and and that is absolutely true. Just wonder if one of your biggest regrets. All right, then. 
So that was two opportunities you had to have a listen um, to the audio in particular that we're going to look at in this first phase. So there's probably a couple of bits that we want to, uh, I guess, just look at first of all. So when we think about interaction and we think about conversation, um, what we need to bear in mind is the, the fact that meaning is constructed as we go. So what we're, what's often happening is, uh, and in this example, you've got Susanna Reid asking a question and then you've got Matt Hancock responding. Um, and Susanna Reid opens with Matt Hancock, what are your regrets over the past year? What do you reflect on that you could have done differently? And uh, there's a, a pause, slightly longer pause than you might get normally in interaction. Um, and then Matt Hancock's reply is, well, I regret, I regret all of the deaths. And what we can see there is an example of um, Matt Hancock picking up on some of the language that Susanna Reid has used in her question. Because um, the key words I want to pick up on is, Matt Hancock, what are your regrets over the past year? What do you reflect on that you could have done differently? So the, the way that, that Susanna Reid is framing this section is on regrets and reflections. So... When we then think about the how Matt Hancock bends or breaks the principles of the cooperative principle, those four maxims of quality, quantity, relevance and manner, then we can also look at how does he build on the framing that is used. So we can hear that his initial response is, I regret, I regret all of the deaths. Um, and then what we see that follows that is the first bending of the quantity maxim. Because uh, he goes on to describe how his feeling of a sense of loss, and then he goes on to describe how he found out how he describes he found out about it when he was at home that he was sitting down and that it really hit him. And so you got there a, a combination of um, of things. So one is he's bending the quantity maxime because he's giving us additional information that we don't need. So Susanna Reed's questions are: What are your regrets, and what do you reflect on that you could have done differently? What Matt Hancock is giving us is a regret of all of the deaths um, and he remembers the very first one and he remembers a big deep sense of loss and he found out about it when he was at home sitting down and that's when it really hit him and it's that bit about the deep sense of loss okay maybe um, because with sadness and with death often there is a, a sense of loss but then you've got I find out about it when I was at home I was sitting down and that really hit me so it's this additional detail that we don't really need um, and so when we think about the quantity maxim, which is about giving enough information, but not too much here, Matt Hancock is giving us additional information. And now the question that would leave me as an analyst is, well, why is he doing that then? Why is he giving me this additional information um, which would bend one of the maxims? Now, it could be for a couple of different reasons. One, it could be because when Susanna Rees asked the question, this has come to mind and it's recalled a memory for him of, um, of that experience. Because when she mentioned, what are your regrets? Then, and he's saying, I regret all the deaths. And then um, it's bringing back a memory of this additional um, information. Uh, two, it could be that what Matt Hancock is trying to do is to manage an impression of him. So it's to manage how the audience, and so in the audience, and this could be Susanna Reid and Ben Shepherd, but as I talked about prior to this, um, this audio clip that I've given you, 
there's also a broader TV audience at play here. So it could be that what he's aiming to do is to manage an impression of how the audience see him. Now, impression management is a phenomenon that I am very, very, very interested in, um, and it's not one for today. We're going to save that for a different piece of analysis that will come in the future. Um, so we've had a couple of different hypotheses then. So one is that Susanna Reese's question has recorded memory for Matt Hancock. Two, that he's giving us a, this, this additional information to manage an impression of him. Three, it could be that he's giving this additional information to buy him some thinking time. So... Um, Sometimes in TV interviews, the guest or the interviewee will get told in advance the questions that are being asked, and other times they might not, they may not. So for this interview, we don't know for sure if Matt Hancock has or has not been told what the, inter- the, what the questions are going to be beforehand. So it could be that he's also trying to buy some thinking time. It could be that he's overwhelmed with emotion on the anniversary of the first COVID lockdown. Um, and, it, and or it could be something else entirely. So as an analyst then... Um, what I'm doing when I'm noticing as we are here that this quantity maxim has been bent I'm coming up with different hypotheses and to and ra- rationale or reasons as to why that could be and then my task is to then try and test those hypotheses as much as I could so what evidence or data do I have to support one or more hypotheses so if we move on through the data set then um Matt Hancock goes on to talk about, he remembers at the start that we thought we couldn't pass this disease on unless you have symptoms, uh, and that, that, was, that was an assumption that underpins some of the early policies. And we've learned, we've learned a lot as a society. And you know, thankfully, now we can see a root out of this. So this bit's interesting. So Susanna's question was, what are your regrets over the past year, and what do you reflect on that you could have done differently? And we're starting to get additional information here where Matt's telling us about, sorry, when Matt, let me try that one again. We're starting to get information here where Matt Hancock, the then Secretary of State for Health, is saying at the start, we we thought that you couldn't pass this disease on unless you have symptoms. And we've got the word we in there, not me. So Susanna's question was, what are your regrets and what do you reflect on that you could have done differently? And we've moved from I to we. So we've got I see, I remember, I found out, I was at home. I remember at the start, we thought that you couldn't pass this disease on unless you have symptoms. So Matt Hancock is now shifting the positioning of himself in this. So he's putting himself alongside others by come, by using this we aspect. And then he goes on to talk, well, that was the assumption that underpins some of the early policies. And we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot as a society. And now, you know, thankfully, now we can see a route out of this. So we've got this continuation of the shift from I to we. And we've got a shift of regrets and reflect to learning and learned. Or sorry, learned and learned, I should say. So you have initially, when Susanna Reese's questions are, what are your regrets over the past year? What do you reflect on that you could have done differently? Matt Hancock initially opens with an acknowledgement of that, with I regret, I regret all of the deaths. But now we've moved to, and we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot as a society. And you know, now we can see a route out of this. So what I'm highlighting here is that once again, Matt Hancock is is reframing things and or he's bending the maxims so he's bending the relevance maxim now in terms of he's given us information that isn't necessarily relevant to 
Susanna Rees' question at the beginning, because her, her question was, what are your regrets over the past year? What do you reflect on that you could have done differently? And instead, we've be- well, we began with I regret, and then we've moved on to we, and we've learned a lot, and then we've learned a lot as a society. And he goes on then to say, you know, thankfully now we can see a root out of this, uh, but it's it's probably been the hardest year this country's had for a generation, and everybody, everybody's been touched. So we're, not only are we now in from an I to we, we're now from a we to everybody and the country. So this country's had, and everybody, everybody's been touched. Now I think Susanna Reid notices this because this at this point she starts to interrupt. So when Matt Hancock is saying, and everybody and everybody's been touched, Susanna Reid starts to interrupt. So let me just play this part of the interview again. So grab your pen and paper or turn your ears back on and I'll play, I'll play this snippet of the interview again. Uh, but it's, it's probably been the hardest year this country's had for, for a generation. And I wonder and, and if one of your... Everybody's been touched. Yes, and, and that is absolutely true. Just wonder if one of your biggest regrets... Okay, so we've got a couple of different things here, I think. So one is, it's on the and everybody's and everybody. So when Matt Hancock finishes with for a generation and everybody's, that's the point where Susanna Reid comes in with, I wonder if one of your, and then he's, she pauses, lets Matt Hancock finishes and everybody's been touched. And then Susanna Reid kind of latches immediately on the end with yes, and, and, and this is absolutely true. I wonder if one of your biggest regrets was that I wasn't taken seriously enough at the beginning. So... Susanna Reid is reintroducing regrets and reintroducing your, because we've got, I just wonder if one of your biggest regrets was. So Susanna Reid seems to be reorienting the audience and or the interviewee in Matt Hancock back around him as an individual with the use of your. She's added an intensifier with the use of biggest or a, 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 um, not an intensifier, sorry, um, an amplifier so she's amplifying the regrets now so she's got going from just you what do you regret it's your biggest regrets um, and she's bringing us back to regrets so washington isn't out loud saying that she's noticed the shift from i to we to society to everybody or that and she's not again openly saying that she's noticed a shift from regrets and reflect to learned by highlighting it though that implies that she has so by reorienting us back to her original question it would suggest that she can see that matt hancock or notices that matt hancock is bending or breaking some of these maxims because she's bringing us back to the question that he didn't really answer or that he went he where he broke the quantity maxime too much information about where he was, potentially, and or he's broken the relevance maxime by bringing in additional information that wasn't there. So what Matt Hancock has done is used a combination of bending of the maxims and changing of the language to reframe Susanna Reid's opening question in a way that changes how the audience may see the message and or him. Now, if we look broader across the data set, um, then you have additional examples of this happening. So 
uh, the interviewers, so both Matt Hancock and, sorry, both Susanna Reid and Ben Shepherd, they use the word regret once, they use regrets twice, reflect twice, failure once, failures twice, and inquiry five times. Whereas Matt Hancock uses learn, learned, or learning 11 times through the interaction. So when we look at how both sets of um, interviewers and interviewees are using language to frame and position what's happening and going on, there certainly seems to be a, um, a dominance from Matt Hancock anyway in wanting to frame learning using the terms learn, learned, and learning within it. And yes, you have got regrets twice at the beginning, from or regrets, sorry, from um, Matt Hancock at the beginning, but it doesn't show up again in the data set. So that in itself is interesting in terms of often what you see when uh, two individuals in a conversation have a connection is you will see not necessarily exact mirroring or an exact matching of language, but you'll see alignment together. So potentially... With the use of reflect, which the interviewers Susanna Reid and Ben Shepherd used twice, you could argue that reflect and learning may be synonyms of each other. So in which case that may indicate alignment. But when you've got things like regret, regrets, failure, failures and inquiry, those are less synonymous with learning. They occur less frequently with learn, learn and learned or learning through that interaction. So... By bending these maxims and introducing a different set of language, it, it is looking to potentially change the way, the meaning, sorry, not change the way, it's looking to change the meaning that the audience takes from this interaction. And as I mentioned earlier on, often a politician will have a line that they want to take, a particular argument they want to, to support or a particular point they want to put across or a particular perspective they want the audience to take. And that may be at odds with what the interviewers um, want to do in, in this interviewing type scenario. And that seems to show up in the language within this opening section. Now, within the reports that I mentioned earlier on, so within the uh, the piece of analysis that myself and uh, our community and insight manager, Ashley Hilton, have done, um, we also go in to look at um, a section on where Susanna Reid mentions the words smoking ruin. Um, and if you want to know more about that and how Matt Hancock, again, bends and breaks, actually, some of the maxims within that part of the interaction, then you need to have a look at the report. But for me to include that in this podcast, I mean, this podcast will go on for a very long time. So what I want to do is contrast this opening where we've got Matt Hancock bending two of those maxims and reframing from I through to we to society to everybody. Um, and then the use of the changing use in language from reflect from regret to regret and reflect to learning. What I want to do next is look at an example of where Matt Hancock does adhere to the maxims because that for me is an interesting contrast so I, I mentioned earlier on that as an analyst I'm interested in when things change in an interaction and what we have at the beginning and in the middle are examples of Matt Hancock bending or breaking maxims and what we have at the end towards the end of the interview in this uh, second example I'm going to give is him adhering to the maxims and that's something that I think again is worthy of our attention so Grab your pen and paper again, um, and then what I'll do is I'll play you the second 
piece of audio for you to have a listen to, and then we will unpack it afterwards. We heard from a care home manager earlier, uh, Mr Hancock, if you are looking at trying to make it uh, mandatory, to saying the recruitment is a nightmare in the care home industry at the moment already. And if you do make it compulsory, people are going to leave that industry. Well, no decision's been taken, and we've got to take into account all of these things. Um, but I'm glad to say that recruitment is up uh, in social care, which is good news. Um, but crucially, we also have a duty of care uh, over the people who are in uh, care homes. So both sides of this have to be taken into account. And uh, 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 and we've got to talk to, to people in the sector. Uh, there are many in the sector who are calling for this to happen because a legal change would be required. Mm. Um, and it's, it is something we're considering. And it, you're considering it, that suggests it's likely. Uh, when would it be introduced under consideration? Uh, well, no decision has been taken, so there's no there's no uh, date or timing on this because it's something that we've been looking at, but we haven't come to a conclusion on. Okay, so that was your first pass. Um, here we go again, second time round, and then we will unpick um, what happens on the other side. We heard from a care home manager earlier, uh, Mr Hancock, if you are looking at trying to make it uh, mandatory, to saying the recruitment is a nightmare in the care home industry at the moment already. And if you do make it compulsory, people are going to leave that industry. Well, no decision's been taken and we've got to take into account all of these things. Um, but I'm glad to say that recruitment is up uh, in social care, which is good news. Um, but crucially, we also have a duty of care uh, over the people who are in uh, care homes. So both sides of this have to be taken into account. And uh, 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 and we've got to talk to, to people in the sector. Uh, there are many in the sector who are calling for this to happen because a legal change would be required. Mm. Um, and it's, it is something we're considering. And it, you're considering it, that suggests it's likely. Uh, when would it be introduced under consideration? Uh, well, no decision has been taken. So there's no... It, it, there's no uh, date or timing on this because it's something that we've been looking at, but we haven't come to a conclusion on. Hello and welcome back. So even though I've played that as a single piece of audio, I'm going to chunk it up into two parts. So part one is going to be the Ben Shepherd question and then the second, which is the male interviewer. And then the second part is going to be the Susanna Reid section, which is the female interviewer. Um, and... What we notice here is different to what we've noticed in the other sections. Now, if you've read the report, you'll have read the smoking ruin section, which is where Matt, Honkuk, Matt Hancock is um, responding to questions by Susanna Reid and Ben Shepherd about um, Dominic Cummings' assertion that um, the Department of Health and Social Care was a smoking ruin and how Matt Hancock bends and breaks the maxims in, his, um, in the way that he, he approaches that part of the conversation. And then it's also different to um, what we've covered in this podcast uh, with regards to that opening section where Matt Hancock uses the bending and breaking of the, well, the bending of the maxims to reframe Susanna Reid's opening question. So what happens here then is we've got Ben Shepherd um, who says, we've heard from a care home manager uh, earlier, uh, Mr. Hancock, if you're looking to make, a, make it mandatory to saying the recruitment is a nightmare in the care industry at the moment already. If you do make it compulsory, people are going to leave that industry. So 
there's a there's not really a question in there it's more of a, a statement which is a method of elicitation actually where you make a statement and you wait for someone to reply rather than asking a question um so but ben Hank, uh, but ben uh, shepherd's assertion then is that if you make it mandatory people will leave um and matt hancock's response is well no decision has been taken and we've got to take into account all of these things he then adds in a little bit of information of, but I'm glad to say that recruitment is up in social care, which is good news, which is kind of relevant, but maybe less so. Um, so it's something that certainly seems to support his argument or support his point of view, um, but there could be some bending of the of the relevance um, maxim in there. Uh, it goes on to talk about crucially we've got a duty of care over people who are in care homes so both sides of this both sides of this have to be taken into account and we've got to talk to people in the sector there are many in the sector who are calling for it to happen because a legal change would be required and it's something we're considering so apart from that small moment where i say small moment apart from that moment where matt hancock talks about being glad to say recruitment is up in social care which is good news if we look across the maxims then quality presuming that his assertion that recruitment is up and that is good news is there quantity there's too much there's 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 enough but not too much and not too little potential one around the relevance one um uh, and then in terms of manner and in avoiding ambiguity and being clear again it's it's a there's there's little ambiguity in there and that then moves on to Susanna Rees' follow-up question where um, she's saying, and you're considering it, which suggests it's likely, when would it be introduced under consideration? And Matt Hancock's response is, well, uh, no decision has been taken, so there's no, uh, uh, there's no date or timing on this because it's something we've been looking at, but we haven't come to a conclusion on. Um, so again, we've got enough information that's relevant, it's truthful, or what he believes to be true as far as we know, um, and there's there's little ambiguity and there's clarity. So, so we have a contrast here then between this, this answer or these answers that Matt Hancock gives to both Susanna Reid and Ben Shepherd with the um, example that we looked at earlier on in this podcast where the question asked was about what are your regrets over the past year? What do you reflect on that you could have done differently? where within his response there is additional information um, that bends the quantity maxime, there's additional information that bends the uh, relevance maxime, there's some uh, ambiguity that bends the um, manner maxime. So in that example, we've got Matt Hancock doing many different things to shift the focus that was asked from the original question into the answer that he gives and here there's a and these and the answer to these questions from first ben shepherd and secondly susanna reed there's there is there's much less of that in comparison with that earlier example so we've looked at the four maxims or the four um unwritten rules of conversation um, we've then looked into this real-life data set of an interaction between Matt Hancock as an interviewee and Susanna Reid and Ben Shepherd as interviewers on uh, the ITV show Good Morning Britain. 
And what I've aimed to demonstrate is how people that are in conversation do things as they interact. And the way they do things, and in this example, looking at the cooperative principle, is interesting for myself and for Ashley as analysts. And we're looking at what happens because it it tells us things about what people may be feeling and how they may be thinking. And so when individuals in this example that we have here are bending or breaking those maxims of the cooperative principle, there's something going on. Now, does that something equal deception? No. Does that something equal um, cognitive load where someone's got to think really high? No. Does that something equal nervousness or anxiety? No. But it could equal one or more of those things at the same time. Now, there's other aspects of communication that you can analyze. Facial expressions, body language, the more specifically the words that are used. I know we've, I've picked up on some pronoun use in here and I've picked up on some word use, but you can look more specifically at that. You can also look at the response latency, so the time it takes somebody to, response to respond to questions. You can also look at the voice and how the voice is produced. There's lots of different communication components that can be analysed. And in this particular piece of analysis, we're only looking at one. So when we look across those channels then, across those different components of communication, it allows us to get a really good idea of what somebody may be thinking and how they may be feeling. Now, I can't read somebody's mind. That's not that's a gift that isn't um, that I do not have. What I can do though is get a really good idea of what might be happening for someone. I can build some hypotheses as to why that may be happening, and then I can test those hypotheses out as we've done here in this analysis with Matt Hancock, and that helps me. That helps emotion at work. It helps emotion at work's clients by giving them an extra layer of insight that isn't available to most people. And when it comes to decisions that are important, whether you should hire person A or person B, what the outcome of an investigation may be, whether or not we need to pursue a particular line in a negotiation or whether we want to build a relationship and build some collaboration with other people in the workplace. Understanding behaviour, analysing behaviour, gives you a really insightful look at the world around you. And Emotion at Work as an organisation exists to enrich lives and reduce harm. So we enrich lives by building relationships, building collaboration, harnessing the power of emotion in the workplace. And we reduce harm by identifying areas of miscommunication, misunderstanding or misrepresentation. When you get to the point where you're just not sure and you want more informed decision-making on those really key decisions that matter, 
then no, you can give emotional work a call and we've got the skills to be able to help you and provide that additional layer of insight when it matters the most. To round us off then, uh, I'm going to say thank you very much, Ashley Hilton, the Insight and Community Manager here at Emotional Work for your expert analysis and writing um, of the report that sits alongside this particular episode of the podcast. To you, fair listener, um, the full report is available in the Emotional Work community. You can register for free at community.emotionatwork.co.uk. Um, and there you can find access to this particular piece of analysis. There is more to come. So there's more analysis on the way, looking at nonverbal communication, uh, in particular looking at body language. We're also going to take a look at some facial expression work as well, as well as the voice, because the voice can tell us an awful lot about how others may be thinking and feeling. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes or Podbean or wherever it is that you may get your podcast from. Remember, you can find us on Instagram. Uh, if you search for the Emotional Work podcast, you will find us on there. Otherwise, though, I'll say thanks very much for listening. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast, and if you got this far, you must be interested in the role that emotions have in the workplace, either within individuals, between people in teams, or in organisations as a whole. So head over to the Emotion at Work hub, which you can find at community.emotionatwork.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.